0: Before I begin this podcast I want to thank the incredible audience of the Ethics podcast and all the Torch podcasts for their incredible generosity in supporting our fundraiser at givetorch.org. I am overwhelmed, I am incredibly gratified and humbled and honored to have your support and your endorsement and your vote. It means so much to me to know that our organization Torch has friends throughout the world, throughout the country, who want to support our work, who want to invest in us. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate your generosity. If you would still like to support the fundraiser, visit givetorch.org. It's going to be open for another couple of days. Every donation is doubled. Thank you so much for your friendship. Thank you so much for your support. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We are up to Chapter 5, Mishnah 2. And today we're going to do Mishnah two and Mishnah three. Asara Doros Adam There are ten generations from Adam until Noah. to show how much patience there is before Him, how patient God is. Shekal haDoros for all those generations were angering Him constantly. Until he brought upon them the waters of the flood. That's Mishnah number two. Mishnah number three. Asara There were ten generations from Noah to Abraham. Again, to show us how patient God is. For all those generations were angering him constantly. Until Abraham, our forefather, came and received the reward of all of them. So, like the previous Mishnah, we have the theme of ten. The previous Mishnah told us that that the Almighty created the world with ten utterances. And now we said there's two more tens. There's the ten generations from Adam until Noah. And the Almighty was patient for ten generations from Adam to Noah before he destroyed the world and started from scratch with the waters of the flood. And there were 10 additional generations from Noah to Abraham. And again, God was angry. God was upset, but slow to anger, but patient until Abraham arrived. And there was no destruction of the world because Abraham received the reward for all of them. So what exactly is going on here is an interesting question. And of course, we will delve into it. But it's also important to note that Noah is almost always compared to Abraham. And in fact, with the whole story of Noah and the flood, God tells him, I'm going to destroy the world and we'll start from scratch. And you build this gargantuan ship so you could survive the deluge that is forthcoming. And Noah does not succeed in changing the tide, in altering the trajectory of the people of his generation, and only Noah and his three children, and his wife and his three daughters-in-law, survive the flood. Whereas with Abraham, when Abraham is told a very similar message, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham launches salvos of prayer trying to save them ultimately he is unsuccessful he manages to save just lot his brother-in-law slash nephew but we see very different behaviors when faced with similar information noah seems to accept the reality that the people around him are going to be sinners and there's nothing he could do about it whereas abram says what can i do how can i intercede how can i change them and here we see there's 10 generations from adam to noah and there's 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, and those 10 generations are very similar. But the punctuation of those 10 generations, namely Noah versus Abraham, are very different. With Noah, he presided over the destruction of the preceding world and a new world to emerge. Whereas Abraham, the world was not destroyed in his time. it was There was localized destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the entire world survived. Because of Abraham, and as a result, Abraham garnered all their reward. But again, like we said previously, the idea of 10 is going to appear many times in this chapter. And it always symbolizes a certain unit of completion. You have 10 fingers. With 10, you move up a decimal. And everything that the Almighty does is complete and is going to feature units of 10. And in fact, the commentaries point out that if you look at the ages of Adam to Noah, and we read this in the beginning of the book of Genesis, it runs through 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and they all lived like 969, 930, 950. They all lived very, very long lives. And we all wonder, how is that possible? How is it possible that people lived so long? Today, you know, you match out, I don't know, 100, 118. But regardless, once that first unit of 10 generations ends and you analyze the life expectancy, shall we say, or the life lived of the 10 generations that followed from Noah. To Abraham, you find that there was a sharp reduction in life expectancy. The average out at about 400, about half. And then in the times of Abraham, that's already the beginning of the third unit of 10 generations. Abraham lives to 175 and Isaac to 180. And Jacob, he lives to 147, but already his children, they don't make it that long either. So we see that the actual rules of nature, the life expectancy of people, changes every 10 generations. So the first time we had 10 generations, and they're all sinners, and God is patient, and comes along the generation of Noah, and we have a destruction of the world and a new world emerges and there are new rules that govern this new world and then 10 generations later things change as well a second time and again things change and the expected the life expectancy of people is sharply reduced and the rabbinic points out that when jacob meets pharaoh pharaoh is astonished at how old jacob is and he asks him, "This record of the Torah." And he asks him, Chapter forty-seven of Genesis, "How old are you?" And he responds, "I'm one hundred and thirty years old, but I haven't lived a full life like my antecedents." We read that story in Genesis, and the rabban points out that even for his time, the times of Jacob, it was very unusual for people to live to one hundred and thirty because the rules had changed. So that's somewhat related to our discussion, where we have this change. There's 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and the rules of the world change, and a new world emerges with Noah. But our tells us that the Almighty really wanted to do the flood much earlier, or he was justified in doing the flood much earlier because people were sinners and were destroying the world. But the Almighty was patient. He was slow to anger and consequently he waited for 10 generations. Now if you remember the previous Mishnah, the previous Mishnah talks about the fact that the wicked people destroy the world. And you have a wicked person who destroys the world that was created with 10 So our Mishnah is a continuation of that idea. We have ten generations of wicked people, and they were destroying the world, and indeed the world should have been destroyed, if not for the fact that the Almighty was slow to anger. God is kind, and He is slow to anger, and He is patient, and indeed He should have destroyed the world, but He allowed for 10 generations to elapse until Noah, when he ultimately did destroy the world. Now, if I were to ask you the question, is God being slow to anger, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I think most of y'all would say, that's a very good thing. The mighty slow to anger. He's patient with us. It's a fantastic thing. It shows, perhaps, we could say that he's merciful. He doesn't punish us right away. He allows us to have time, to have a grace period. It's a good thing for God to be slow to anger. But I want to make an argument that maybe it's not. Hear me out. Isn't there an argument to be said? that God being slow to anger is anti-mercy? There's an interesting Mishnah in the book of Sanhedrin, page 71b, that talks about a ben sorer umore, a wayward and rebellious son. A wayward and rebellious son is a child, 13 years old. And what do they do? They steal money from their parents. And they buy meat and wine and eat it in bad company. And what happens to such a child who fulfills the precise criteria of the ben Mora? Well, the Torah tells us that they get executed. Now, the Talmud, of course, reassures us it never happened, it never will happen. But there's some idea, a concept, that a child that behaves in such a manner should be executed. And the question is why? What they do? They stole some money. Okay, it's not a great thing. It's a crime. But is this an executable offense? Is this a capital crime? Seems like a hard argument to make. Says the Mishnah, Ben Sorer Umore, a wayward and rebellious son, is judged as per their future end. The Almighty is able to foretell when you have this precise constellation of behaviors. You have a child at a very specific formative age of their life and they're doing very specific things and they're developing habits that are likely to become ingrained and they're doing crime to be able to feed those Desires such a child, the Almighty predicts with a hundred percent certainty that they will become murderers, and therefore, it's better for them to die innocent than to die guilty. That is the rationalization for the execution of the Bensara Umara. Continues the Mishnah for death. For the wicked is pleasure for them and pleasure for the world. It's pleasure for them because they stop sinning. It's pleasure for the world because now the world has fewer criminals. For the righteous, death is bad for them because they stop doing mitzvos, and it's bad for the world because the righteous protect the world. And admonish the sinners and improve the world. Continues the Mishnah. Wine and sleep is really good for the wicked. Because when they're drinking or when they're sleeping, they don't do sins and they don't do bad things. But for the righteous, it's bad for them. They can't study Torah when they're in a stupor. And it's bad for the world. Because the Torah of the righteous protects the generation and when they are drunk and when they are asleep, they cannot study Torah. Continues the Mishnah, to be scattered is good for the wicked because they can't collaborate, but it's bad for the righteous because they can't collaborate. And so on. When it's quiet and peaceful, it's bad for the wicked and half the world, and when it's quiet... And peaceful, it's good for the righteous and good for the world. That's the idea of the Mishnah. But the Mishnah tells us that death for the wicked is a very good thing. Because now they don't sin anymore. So our Mishnah is telling us, oh, the Almighty is slow to get angry. He's very patient. He allows the wicked to do so many sins before he exacts any retribution. And apparently it's a good thing. But wait a minute. Isn't it better for the wicked to just die and be over with it? If we believe that we have a soul that's eternal and our body and our bodily existence is temporary, if we believe that, which we do, and we also believe The people's choices and decisions and priorities in this world, they reverberate eternally in the next world. And someone who's on a trajectory of sin, it's better to just cut it short, like the Mishnah tells us. Death for the wicked is a good thing for them. They stop doing any more sins. Their soul is less damaged. So how does our Mishnah tell us, or why does the Mishnah tell us that it's The Almighty is patient and slow to anger. He waited 10 generations. And of course, that is revealing to us a characteristic of God, a behavior of God, that God is slow to anger. He's patient with the wicked. He gives them lots of grace period before he exacts any retribution, before he meets out any punishment. Maybe the Almighty should do the opposite. The Almighty should punish us right away And be take us out of this game, out of the arena, in order to prevent future sins. So there's two answers here. There's two answers to explain why the Almighty delayed the punishment for ten generations. The first answer that the commentaries give is that if a sinner is punished right away, they'll never have the opportunity to repent, to wrestle with their behavior and change their life. If we got rid of the sinners, if the Almighty got rid of the sinners right away, repentance would not be possible. The Almighty is willing to wait 10 generations. Just repent, just come back, and we can forget about all those sins. A second reason offered by the commentaries to explain what is good, what is righteous about the Almighty delaying the punishment for ten generations is that it gives the wicked opportunity to bear righteous children. Terach. Terach was a purveyor of, of idols. He was someone who was an idolater. He was someone who was a really wicked guy who rejected God. We would call him a traitor. We would call him someone who is rebelling against God. But who is his son? His son is Abraham, the light of the world. Had Terah been oft Abraham would not have been born. And therefore, the Almighty, by him delaying retribution for ten generations, he is affording the wicked the opportunity, perhaps their children will be righteous and they will forever have the benefit of being the progenitors of righteous children. If you remember in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, when it talks about Moshe coming of age, he gets a little older and he goes out to see to witness the suffering of his brethren. And he sees on day one an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. And what does Moshe do? ko And he turned to and fro. And he saw that there was no man. And he hits the Egyptian, and he kills him, and he buries him in the sand. If you look at Rashi, Rashi tells us something very fascinating. Vayifein kovacho. He turned to and fro. He looked there, and he looked there. And he saw that there was no man. Says Rashi, what this means is that Moshe was able to look into this person's future. This Egyptian, would any permutation of their future descendants result in a righteous person? Would any one of their future descendants become a convert, become a righteous follower of the Almighty? He looked to, he looked fro. And he saw there was no man. He saw that this person would not bear a child who would become a tzaddik, who would become righteous. And therefore he said, for this person, I'm going to knock him down right now. I'm going to kill him right now, bury him in the sand, and that will actually redound to his benefit. But on a generational level, the Almighty does not kill the wicked. He waits. He gives them generations before he makes a move in order to allow, perhaps, them to bear children who are righteous. Now, the first idea here we're told in this Mishnah is that the Almighty sometimes works slowly. We see the wicked. We see them flourishing. We see them doing things that are against the Torah, are against God, are rebellious. And we kind of question, wait a minute, why is the Almighty not intervening? Why is the money not intervening? Why is he not stopping this? Why is he allowing the wicked to flourish for so long? Here's the answer. The Almighty waited ten generations, thousands of years, before he made the move of the flood. The characteristic of God is to be patient, to be slow to anger, to allow people plenty of time to repent, plenty of time perhaps to bear children that could become righteous, could change the world, and could be their legacy. So when we see the wicked flourishing and not being punished, we have to recognize the mighty way to 10 generations, and he may be waiting in our times as well. And then we read about the next 10 generations from Noah, to Abraham. We have 10 generations. Noah's righteous. And ready with his kids, we see it's kind of hit or miss. He has his son, Shame, was righteous. And Yafes is almost like a hybrid. And then we have Ham, or Ham, was decidedly wicked. And then immediately afterwards, we have the Tower of Babel story. It seems like humanity has failed to learn the lesson. And for ten generations, we have a litany of idolaters and sinners. And then comes Abraham. And unlike with Noah, in Abraham's time, after ten generations, humanity is not destroyed. And the question is, why? Why was humanity not destroyed in times of Abraham? Ten generations of idolaters and sinners since Noah. Why didn't Abraham build another boat and survive and endure with his family, perhaps? Why did the whole world survive in the times of Abraham? So there's an amazing Rabbi Nyoni here that we have to read. I want to read it carefully because it's such an amazing thing. I had to read it like four or five times because it's just so incredible what he what he writes. He says that in the times of Abraham, they weren't punished. And the reason for it is because Abraham plugged in all the gaps. Abraham did all the mitzvos that they should have done. Abraham was such a gargantuan tzaddik. He was so righteous that he did not only his share of mitzvahs, he did the share of mitzvahs of all the people of the entire world of his generation. And therefore, if you were to just average out the deeds of the people of Abraham's generation on a per capita basis, You'll find that the average person was righteous. Because Abraham was so righteous that his deeds spilled over to the rest of the people of his generation. And therefore he brought the average up, and the average person in Abraham's time was righteous. They say that if, if Bill Gates walks into a bar, the average person's a billionaire, right? You've heard that idea? You could have one person who is so off the charts on a given question that they just raise the average for everyone. Abraham was so off the charts with his righteousness that his good deeds compensated for all the sins and all the idolatry of all the people of his generation, and therefore the entire generation survived and was not destroyed. But what happened to Abraham? So how does the Mishnah end? For all the generations angered God until Abraham came and received the reward of all of them. Abraham got his reward and got the reward of every other person in his generation. What does this mean? Let's continue and read this Rebani he explains that every person has a preordained portion in both heaven and Gehenna and purgatory. And if you are righteous, then the preordained portion that is designated for you in heaven gets unlocked and you get your portion In heaven. What if you choose to go the opposite path? If you choose to reject your soul and to live a very transient, ephemeral life? Well then, you have made the other choice and therefore you've unlocked the other portion and that's quite unfortunate. But every person is pre-designated a portion in both this world and that world heaven and but what happens if a person becomes righteous and therefore they unlock their portion in paradise in heaven well what happens to the portion that was designated for them in the other place what happens with that does that just disappear Says Rabbi Niyona, no. That portion does not disappear. That portion will be given to another person who deserves it. Meaning, if you have two people and one person becomes really righteous, they have earned and unlocked their portion in heaven. The other person becomes really wicked, well, they earned their portion in Gehenna. Well, what if the righteous person becomes so righteous to become even more righteous than what their preordained portion amounts to? And then you have the other person who is wicked but is so wicked that they deserve more punishment than their preordained portion in gehenom Well, what happens then reveals to us Dirbiniona is that the wicked's portion in heaven gets acquired by the righteous person who was super-righteous. And the super-righteous person's portion in gehenom well, that gets acquired by the super-wicked person. There is real estate in both of these worlds and a person can acquire not only their own designated portion, but also the designated portion's of the people of their generation. What this means is, Abraham was supremely righteous. And he did enough mitzvos, enough good deeds, to compensate for every other person in his generation being wicked. And as a result, the generation was not destroyed. Because the average the average person in that generation was righteous, thanks to Abraham. He raised the averages for everyone. But concomitant with him doing the mitzvot that other people needed to do, he earned the portion in heaven predesignated for all those other people. And thus tells us the Mishnah, Abraham came and received the reward of all of them. Continue with Reb'ni Yonah. Eis la'shem heferu Quotes a verse in Psalms 119. It is a time to do for God, for they have rejected and repudiated your Torah. What does that mean? Explains the Talmud. If you see a generation that is rejecting Torah, you should study Torah with greater intensity. Why? This is the idea that Warren Buffett always says. You have to be greedy when other people are being fearful and be fearful when other people are being greedy. Every single person, there is a version of that person that's righteous. And there's a version of that person, of course, that's wicked. And therefore, for both outcomes, there is a portion in heaven, a portion in hell for that person. If that person chooses the wicked path, then their real estate in heaven is up for grabs. And whoever does more than their share of mitzvot in that generation is able to commandeer, appropriate, the other person, the sinner's portion in heaven. And therefore advises us the Talmud. If you see a generation that people are being, they're sinners. They're rejecting Torah. They're embracing idolatry. They're becoming people who are distant from God. You should recognize there's tons of real estate in heaven that's available. And whoever does more than what's expected of them, that person is going to acquire everyone else's portion in heaven as well. And he gives the analogy of a loyal servant. Suppose there's a coup attempt and a bunch of the king's advisors and ministers and servants try to topple him, try to overthrow him. But there's one loyal minister, one loyal servant who stands up for the king. At a time when everyone is rejecting the king, there's one loyal servant. Once the king destroys the rebellion, stamps it out, he will always remember the people who were loyal to him. In a time where there is mass rejection of God, the people who are most loyal to him are forever going to be rewarded for their loyalty. And here we find in this mission a very interesting idea that when Abraham was loyal to God in a generation that no one else was, Abraham acquired everyone else's eternal reward because it was up for grabs. And therefore, we are advised In a generation where you see people distancing themselves from God, you should know there is a lot of spiritual real estate in heaven. There's a lot of eternal reward that's designated for people who are rejecting it. It's available and you can encroach, if you will, on someone else's territory. You can acquire someone else's eternal portion in heaven If you do more than your share. Abraham did so much more than his share of mitzvot. And as a result of that, his generation was not destroyed. But another consequence of his overflowing holiness and righteousness and piety, he actually managed to acquire the reward that was destined or at least apportioned to all the people of his generation. I think both of these Mishnahs are very, are very valuable lessons for people who live in a generation where the trend, or at least the masses, ignore God. On one hand, we worry, why is God not intervening? Why is he allowing this to endure? Why is he not taking action? And to answer that question, we have the ten generations from Adam to Noah. And that shows us that the Almighty is patient. The Almighty is slow to anger. He wants people to repent. He wants to give people the opportunity to right their wrongs. What should we do when confronted by such a generation? We should seize the opportunity because... We should be greedy when other people are being fearful. We should recognize that when we go in opposition to the rest of the people around us, when we embrace God and His Torah and righteousness at a time where that's not popular, our impact, our spiritual acquiring of eternity is that much Greater and therefore it's a great opportunity for us to maximize our life's output that is amplified, that is augmented when that is unpopular. I thank you all for listening. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I suspect that this particular discussion is going to raise some questions. Send your questions, rabbiwolbygmail.com.